Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. It's one of the darkest and most misunderstood books of the Bible, but in this episode, the Spin team tries to wrap their heads around Job. Using a helpful commentary, they discuss key issues in the text, and Carl and Todd give good tips on how to preach through it. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how to enter a drawing for a book from the Alliance. On today's program, we want to address one of the most well-known, fascinating, but difficult and misunderstood books in the biblical canon. And that is the book of Job. Job is a, a hardy perennial, even in the wider culture. Phrases such as Job's comforters are part and parcel of a cultural lingo. Uh, William Blake, the famous uh, poet and mystic and illustrator of the early 19th century, uh, illustrated the book of Job. He was fascinated by this story of a man tormented by Satan, with apparently with God's permission. And the book has continued uh, throughout the ages uh, to be uh, the classic place in Scripture for addressing issues relating to the problem of evil and the problem of suffering and what an appropriate response, an appropriate theological response should be to suffering. And recently, Crossway have published uh, an excellent commentary in the series uh, Preaching the Word, which is edited by uh, friend Kent Hughes. Uh, They've published a volume by the English preacher Christopher Ashe entitled Job, the Wisdom of the Cross. And the team have read this book, and I think we're united in thinking it it could well be uh, one of the most thorough homiletic and pastoral treatments of of the book of Job uh, that we've ever come across. So we wanted to spend our time today reflecting uh, on the book of Job, on some of the great insights that Christopher Ash has on this book, and to draw out lessons for practical pastoral ministry and indeed practical uh, Christian ministry for, for all brothers, Christian brothers and sisters. Because, of course, the story of Job is ultimately the story of us all. Uh, we all, if we live long enough, have friends who suffer terribly and mysteriously. And, of course, ultimately, the grave beckons to us too. So Job's story ultimately becomes our story. Mm-hmm. So, Amy. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on the book of Job and, yeah. and Christopher Ashe's um, commentary on the same? Well, when you mentioned, when you two mentioned going through this book, I'll just be honest, wasn't looking forward to it. Job is the one book in the Bible that I just dread sometimes going to. And one, because it's just so dark. It's such a dark book. Mm-hmm. And um, to have to, to deal with and go there and then... It's long, yeah. <laughs> and so it's you know long and dark, and um, so therefore I knew the commentary was going to be long, and I was going to be spending a lot of time in this darkness, and even um, you know page nineteen in the introduction, Ash says, um, if we listen to it carefully, it will touch us, trouble us, and unsettle us at a deep level. Mm. So I knew what I was in for, but um, you know right away I realized. 
as well in the introduction that is so Christ-centered. I just love how he um, points to Christ in every single chapter. And like you said, it's a very pastoral book. So as a lay person, I have been highly recommending this book to so many um, regular congregants to use as a devotional. The chapters are actually short. So um, you can you can get through the book very easily. Um, it's easy to read, and there's so much um, pastoral application. Um, I think it's a great book to help disciple people with. Amy, I think that's a great idea, and and I've had the same thought. Is that and, and as Carl said in his introduction, this is a this is a homiletical commentary. In other words, it is not a critical commentary where you need to have been to seminary to really grasp what he's writing. This is meant as an aid for preachers to help communicate the central truths. And so if, if, if a layperson in a church will sit down and read it, what basically what he or she is reading are the thoughts of a very skilled preacher, Christopher Ashe, unpacking mm-hmm. the truth and applying the truth of Job. And it would be an excellent devotional book for really somebody would. to keep by their bedside mm-hmm. or by the table in the morning and read a chapter each day or a half a chapter each day. And you'll be go and you will go through an, an, a skillfully written study and application of the book of Job. So it, it would be great. He uh, opens for that it up purpose. too with the three big questions of what Job is all about. And he says, the three big questions are what kind of world do we live in? What kind of church should we want? And what kind of savior do we need? Mm. I mean, everybody yeah, yeah. asks those questions. Right. We're all confronted with the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of the cross. And that's, that's really what you get in yeah. Job. Yeah. You know, several months ago we were at, Westminster Seminary for their um, annual preaching uh, conference, and uh, Kent Hughes was the speaker for that, and we had a chance to to do a panel discussion with him. And afterwards, as we were kind of stepping away from the table from the panel discussion, I I thanked him for this volume in Job. I had recently finished preaching through Job, and I told him, you know, what what a what a great volume it was in this series that he edits. And his eyes got really big. And he said, when we got the manuscript for that, we were reading it and looking at each other saying, are we reading the best thing out there on Job? And I, I said, I said, that's how I felt as I was, I was, as I was working through it. It's, it's that good. Well, Carl said before, don't, don't read the second best or the third right, best thing. Right, if you right. can read the first best thing. Right. Yeah. One of the questions, of course, when, when one comes to the book of Job is, you know, to use a sort of a slightly technical way of, of talking about it, it's, it's the reading strategy. Mm. You know, Job is a book of poetry. Right. Poetry as a genre is is tricky at the best of times mm. in terms of, of interpretation. Yeah. Uh, it's often repetitive. It often achieves its effect through a form of indirect communication rather than a simple statement of fact. Um, Amy, uh, as as a layperson approaching the book of Job, how how did you find that Ash's book helped you think about your reading strategy in terms of, you know, do you take a long section or do you take a short section? Do you go verse by verse? Do you go scene by scene? Uh, in Job? Did, yeah. How did Ash help you read Job for Because he really breaks it down. Um, he, he, I love how, and I've been telling people this as well, he won't just take the whole speech and then do a commentary on the whole speech. He breaks down pieces of the speech and um, puts it in layman's terms very well. And what I like is that I get the history of it. That's one struggling thing I think about reading uh, poetry and scripture is if you don't know, if you're not a scholar and you don't know the history of, of where these words are coming from, the etymology of some of these words, um, it's so helpful that he gives it mm-hmm. there so easily. And so... I found it to be very unintimidating the way that he breaks it down so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you could read a whole speech 
and maybe get just a little bit out of it. Whereas the way that he breaks down the speeches, I felt like I, it was a much more rich understanding for me. Yeah. And then he also, he approaches each chapter with questions for the reader a lot. So like at the end he says, um, he really, I just feel like he has a good dialogue going with mm-hmm. this imaginary reader. And so uh, the beginning of, I think it was God's first speech. Oh no, it was Job's last word. And uh, that was the title of the chapter. And he opens with, you know, what would you say as your last words about yourself if yeah. you knew those were your last words? Mm-hmm. Well, that's such a searching question. Yeah. And then it, it brings you into Job's last words. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, I love the way that he makes me think before I even read the text mm-hmm. that he's about to teach. Yeah, he, he, you know, Ash is clearly a skilled preacher. And so, and, and that's why I say, I think, Amy, your recommendation of using this book is as a devotional book to, to take you through the book of Job is, is a great idea because because what, you, what you're dealing with are, are, are skilled pastors, um, thoughts, applications, and searching questions in, in that sense. It, one of the things that, that Ash does, and I didn't follow his advice on this, um, when I preached through Job, I think I did it in, I think it was 13 weeks. Um, Christopher Ash, his, his commentary takes 34 or 35 weeks. And and he he does this. He communicates great wisdom early on to the preacher, where he says, "Look, the the temptation is uh, Job opens and closes with with narrative mm-hmm. records, and and those are the ones that we spend most of our time on. And then you have, as Carl mentioned, this vast middle section, which is Hebrew poetry. And that's it's it's hard. It's hard to read long sections of Hebrew poetry. It's hard to and preach. Redundant, like he said, absolutely. Too. <laughs> it's really hard to preach long sections of Hebrew Hebrew poetry. And so, I I I, I took the vast middle section into into more larger chunks. However, I've, I I say that to say, Ash's counsel I think is very wise and and theological in that what he's saying is that big middle section it, it's it's a it's a way that God is forcing you to slow down because the truths that are that the, that the reader has to grapple with here are not things that fit into a tweet you know I think Ash at one point says you know you don't you don't, you don't tweet the answers to these questions to a man in a wheelchair you, you, the, the the very structure of the book itself forces you to slow down, and and we did that. Like I said, I mean, I think I did it in thirteen weeks. Carl, you said you preached it in eighteen weeks or so. Just looked over my computer. Sixteen sermons. Sixteen actually. sermons. Sixteen sermons. And and it is you know you 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 do I, now. I, I'd have a problem if if a guy only preached one or two sermons through that big middle section. That would be a problem. Um, a skilled preacher like Christopher Ash, I'm sure does a does a much better job than I would do through that middle section. The point, though, being is that is that Ash says, you know, that that big middle section of poetry, it it forces the reader to slow down to consider these are these are hard truths to learn. These are hard things to grapple with. Yeah, and I think it also brings home the point that one of the lessons of Job is that that truth is not reducible simply to propositions. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we believe yeah. absolutely in propositional yes. truth. God is one, and God is three. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. These are propositions, but at the heart mm-hmm. of the book of Job, and it's actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible is is Job 28. I had it read at my my ordination in the OPC. Uh, Richard Gaffin, one of my elders, uh, read Job 28 at the ordination service, which really points to the fact that the the essence of wisdom lies in the fear of God. Mm. And the fear of God is not something that can be learned from a textbook. 
The fear of God is something that is learned by by living life under the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, that goes to the the form of Job. The poetry of Job is not incidental because poetry addresses the whole man. Mm-hmm. Poetry forces us to think in different ways. Poetry touches the emotions in a way that that mere propositions, mere prose does not do so. Yeah. You know, another one of the interesting things about about the book of Job is that not not only are are, are things like complaint captured in there and and um, but but as you're reading through the speeches of Job's counselors, now we know the end of the story. We know they're going to get rebuked, so we already know that some of their applications of their theology goes haywire. But if you didn't know that, I wonder how many of us would go along and completely agree with what they're saying, yeah. because they have a universe that's ordered in such a way that the righteous are blessed and the unrighteous are cursed, and certainly they do get some things right in their categories. They get enough right that they're dangerous. Mm-hmm because of the way that they apply. And, and so, so Job's very patient. You know, God doesn't correct any of that stuff mm. until he gets to the end of the yeah, book. Yeah. And so you have, to, you, you have to work through those things. As, you have to wrestle through those things as you're working through the book. Yeah. And I think that shows that you know, Job is also corrective to a lot of modern theology. And I'm not just thinking mm-hmm. of modern liberal theology. I'm thinking yeah. of a lot of, of modern theology as, as we find it in conservative and Conservative triumphalistic, yeah. Yeah, where when it comes to the problem of evil, our concern is to justify the ways of God to men. Mm-hmm. Evil means that God is a problem for us. One of the striking things about Job, of course, is that at the end, when God enters the scene, Job, has, he's lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. Uh, he's lost uh, his health. Uh, he, he's lost his health. He's a physical and emotional <laughs> yeah. wreck. Yeah. And the Lord comes in a whirlwind. And that's fascinating. The Lord doesn't come apologizing to right. Job. The Lord doesn't even come sympathizing right. with Job. The Lord comes in a whirlwind. And if you look in the Old Testament, when the Lord comes in a whirlwind, the whirlwind is a sign of judgment. Mm-hmm. The Lord comes in judgment against Job, right. even as Job is lying in this in this desperate situation and, and essentially answers Job's questions by saying, well, were you around when I founded the universe? Who are you even to ask these questions of me? And that is very countercultural today mm-hmm. because... You know, we, 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 tend to, we tend to think of ourselves as victims of sin. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we're not. We're perpetrators of sin. Yeah. And so often when we're talking, counseling people or thinking about you know, people struggling with this sin or that sin, we, we can somehow make people the victims in mm-hmm. all this. And as soon as human beings become the victims, then God becomes the perpetrator. Right. And the book of Job, I think, is a great corrective mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, it's interesting. Job seems to go through a couple of stages where early on he speaks so well yeah, in the face yeah. of his suffering. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and he fully attributes his calamities to God. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because we're told in, the, in those moments that in all of this, Job did not sin with his mouth. In other words, where modern sensibilities would come along and say, oh, no, don't blame God for this calamity. The, the text is very careful to tell us that when Job attributes his calamity to God, that he spoke rightly in doing so. Job doesn't get rebuked until he begins to, until his complaint reaches the stage that it begins to turn into an accusation, 
where he begins to question God's justice. That's when God comes and speaks. And and I thought of this when you were just saying those things, Carl. I, I hear a lot today in contemporary evangelicalism that quote, it's okay to be angry with God. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to get mad at God. Now, while we certainly would say it's okay to ask God questions, I'm a little I get real nervous when people start saying it's okay to be angry with God because my anger with God presupposes that he's done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And again, Job, for all of his righteousness, eventually does get a rebuke from the Lord when he begins to question God's, the the, the rightness of God's judgments that he's he's made. And so, uh, Does he run the world well? Does he Mm -hmm. run the world well? And that's what Job begins to question. I think you have messed up, God. Mm-hmm. You know, he begins to question, God doesn't seem to be running the world well. And God answers him in some terrifying terms. Yeah. yeah. Question. There are a couple of sort of, we might say, interpretative cruxes mm-hmm. in Job, which have interesting implications. It's a brontosaurus. No, no, I'm not going there. This, oh, okay. I will come to that in a minute. Um, Elihu. Yeah. Good yeah. guy or bad guy? Okay. Is Elihu a good well, guy or bad guy? I love that part in this yeah. commentary of how he says he's a he's a prophet. Yeah. Mm. Prophet of God. I agree that Elihu, you know, introducing yep. God. I yeah. agree that Elihu is a good guy, a good guy. And and I'd suspected this for a while. I always thought that Elihu got a bad rap. Um although I understand why he gets a bad rap, but I think I think Ash helpfully uh, restores uh, uh, Elihu's unnecessarily yeah. tarnished reputation. Because the problem with Elihu, of course, is on the one hand, he's not named and shamed by God at the end. Exactly. But on the other hand, God still speaks. Uh-huh. So Elihu has not had the last word. Yeah. Right. I, I'm very attracted to, I think it's Bob Files' interpretation of Elihu. He said the problem with Elihu is he doesn't show any human compassion to right. Job. He doesn't, right. you know, it's, he's your classic example of, well, God has willed it. Deal with it, yeah, and that is the is the issue with Elihu, and I'm exactly. I'm attracted to that. Mm-hmm. It seems mm-hmm. to me that Elihu works on those terms. Yeah. yeah, he's correct, but you know, frankly, man, you should have been a bit more compassionate. Absolutely. And, and that, that's does, how I, that's why I explain Elihu. He does plea with Job to listen to him in the beginning. I right. mean, almost it's like this is for your own good. Mm-hmm. Like every arrogant Repent. young man in the history of the world, right. so exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but that's that's I, that's how I dealt with him. Is that is that Elihu is not a bad guy like the other three guys. He's not rebuked. Mm-hmm. He speaks truth. He's just not a very good pastor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, he could perhaps have done with, with you know, the other guys at least sat silent for a exactly. while. Exactly. He could have done with maybe a little bit more. I, exactly. And and attention. that's and that's and that's the sad part is that Job's friends get it most right before they actually yeah. start speaking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know. And and yeah. there's a there's a good lesson in that to yeah, us. Yeah, I've often thought you 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 you're most truthful Todd, <laughs> I, when you're silent. Yeah, yeah. I, people you know, have found when, me when Amy and I are talking, that's when there's the most truth. People have on the found program. me most helpful when I don't speak. Um, yeah, but the amount of silence, I mean Ash even talks about how that becomes almost cruel. Well, that's seven days. Seven days. I, I love it's a bit uncomfortable at I'd that point. I never thought about that you know, really until Ash brought that up and thought I, Yeah, that's yeah. seven days of I mean they're there, but well, now, Carl, I think you. Pro- I mean, you're English, so you'd be happy if nobody else yeah, around you spoke. Yeah, but I, I'm antisocial. When the mad woman comes around to our house, I like it when she's silent. That's that's usually good. Yeah. But anyway, the the other interpretative uh-huh. crux, Leviathan. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who or what is Leviathan, and what difference does it make? Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly he's a dinosaur, and he left his footprints in a riverbed I in he Texas. Was a crocodile. Oh, he could be a crocodile. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, Satan. I believe he's. Could it be Satan? Yep, I believe he's a a personification of of Satan. Um, I, I th- there's too many parallels, too many ways that that he that the writer of Job describes Leviathan in in, in ways that are parallel with um, with Satan to uh, to not see it as I I, th- I think it's trivialized when we look at at, at Behemoth and and Leviathan as as dinosaurs, hippopotamus, right, or, here or, an elephant, or, or, yeah. or, or that kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I, th- I think. Clearly, he's a creature. He's he's a creature, malevolent. And he's supremely malevolent mm-hmm. and, and powerful mm-hmm. and terrifying. Yeah. Now, now, and, may, now, maybe that that the writer of Job was was referring to an actual animal, but but using that animal mm-hmm. I, I, as an illustration yeah. for Satan. Yeah. And I think that has interesting theological implications for the mm-hmm. way that one would preach or read the book, because yeah. right. if. And, and I have to say, this, that's a relatively recent exegetical mm-hmm. identification mm-hmm. that does not have a lot of precedent, I don't think, in the history of the interpretation of Job. Mm-hmm. But I think guys like Bob File in, in his book on Job worked that out in some detail. And of course, if you see Leviathan as, as Satan, then really in the, in, when God comes, he's not leaving Job with no answers. Right. What he's doing is, he's at that point, he's just lifting the curtain on reality slightly and saying to Job, there's a lot more going on here than, than you right. see. There is a cosmic battle of good and evil going on, mm-hmm. of which you are, in this particular moment, you are the battleground. Right. So th- there is, it, it actually makes God a bit more pastoral at the end. Absolutely. Right. If you make that identification, then Job is not left completely in the dark yeah. mm-hmm. about the heavenly throne room mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that are said about Leviathan, look, you know, God, God, God captures him on a hook. You know, yeah. Le- Leviathan just plays in the in the waters mm-hmm. that God has created. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and again, there's something deeply pastoral about that. Remember that the enemy of your soul, who can cause so much havoc, he he's he's a dog on a leash. Yeah, he's bounded. He's mm-hmm. and that's very clear in the early chapters of right. Job when the Lord sets limits right. to mm-hmm. what Satan is able to yeah. do without yeah. lightening the language of how truly evil and dark. Exactly. He is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. This does not. Uh, you know, it's it's very clear that that the Book of Job is not laying out a um, also a, a a dualistic theology where you have a universe where two kind of equal but opposing powers are fighting it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're just hoping that the light side of the force wins. That's very clearly from the very beginning, and, and from such an ancient book, where you have this uh, good biblical theology of God's sovereignty even over calamity is being established there. And I think it's also worth remembering in the, in the narrative that even though Job is sort of restored at the end and, uh, you know, he would have remembered the faces of every single one of his children mm-hmm. that died. Yes. And there's no way in which a father can lose, you know, if a father loses one child but then has another child, it's not a kind of oh, a zero, it's not a kind right. of zero sum game. Mm-mm. Job's life would never be the same. Mm-hmm. Well, the game how. was completely changed right. the day he lost his first family. Yeah. House can be replaced, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Property can be, be replaced. Money can be replaced. Livestock can be replaced. Children are irreplaceable. And I think that, that another of the lessons of the book of Job is it doesn't go back to how it was before for him. His life was permanently marked by tragedy, even though the Lord lifted the most severe um, aspects of that tragedy yeah. from him. And, of course, Job himself 
dies at some right. point. Uh, but it's such a picture, I think, of redemptive suffering, which is a huge theme in there. Is um, It's really pointing to what is to come. I think mm-hmm. his blessing at the end points the reader, the you know, sufferer today, right. um, not to, oh, I'm going to have a bigger house and a better family right. here, but that what is to come, I think, for us in eternity. Yeah, it's that idea. It really of, pictures that. Exactly. It's that idea that blessing comes at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Blessing comes yeah. at the end. Um, whatever we may be blessed with now will come and go, but the real blessing comes at the end. Mm-hmm. The real prosperity comes at the end. And that's a very useful lesson at a point in time where I don't anticipate the church is going to be systematically persecuted in America in yeah. the way that it, you know, it has been and is in other parts of the world. But I think the the days when Christianity provided a convenient idiom for expressing American aspirations yeah. to prosperity and comfort, they're gone. Sure. Those days are gone. And Job is a very important book in that because Job, like the Psalms, like Second Corinthians, these are books that recalibrate the expectations mm-hmm. of the believer for this life yes. and relocate our real hope and comfort at some point in the future. Ash says, he says, the book of Job ought to shape our expectation of the normal Christian life. Mm-hmm. And what I really like about that, I thought, oh. You know, maybe somebody from Crossway right now is listening, but maybe we should get Ash to write Job on the Christian life because it really does um, ask, it points so many questions to my own self, self evaluation when I was reading it and added so many more questions. Mm -hmm. And it really does help shape my expectation of the Christian life now. And so we highly recommend this book to anyone. Um, It just, it's very enriching, and like I said, as a layperson, I loved reading it devotionally in, in my free time at home. So I hope that you guys are enriched by this conversation, and stop by our website at mortificationofspin.org, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Head over to mortificationofspin.org to enter for your chance to win Job, The Wisdom of the Cross by Christopher Ash. On the next episode, the gang talks about godliness in the pastorate. We were talking about this a little bit because in the last number of months, there have been some you've heard of, some you haven't heard of, but some rather high-profile pastors, at least high-profile in their own states and in their denominations, who have, um, for lack of a better phrase, taken a nosedive orally and have crashed. That's love, is to show exactly. the evil of sin to your congregation. I mean, is sin evil or is it no big deal? Come back to hear that next time. Don't forget to read more from Carl, Amy, and Todd on their blogs at mortificationofspin.org. We're professionals. You should come to expect that from us. It's like Orson Welles, one take and it's in the can.